So you weren't here last week. Was not. Briefly, what Jason went over was went back over chapter six and focused on the fact of our depravity and how, if you don't understand depravity, the next couple of chapters are going to be you're, you're going to miss the the point. <clears throat> All right. Well, well spoken. <laughs> he went back through the. Uh, and we'll have more to say about that as we continue to go through the confession for sure. <laughs> um, Alright, so sounds like Jason continued essentially what I was going over. Yeah, maybe what he was it. trying to do is he was just trying to make sure that uh, nobody missed uh, what you were uh, going through. And so, gotcha. Okay. Uh, that's, that's why you wanted to do it. Alright, so... Okay, so then over our last few lessons, um, it sounds like including last week, uh, we've been discussing the covenant of works and the fall of man. So this evening we will continue on this subject of the covenant, um, not necessarily the covenant of works alone, but uh, the covenant in general. Um, and that's the topic of our next chapter. So we're going to be in chapter 7. Um, R.C. Sproul once wrote this. Reformed theology is often called covenant theology. The concept of covenant, which provides the structure or framework of redemptive history and of the whole scope of theology, is vitally important. It provides the context within which God reveals himself to us, ministers to us, and acts to redeem us. The language and idea of covenant pervade redemptive history and the Bible. And um, I would add to that, even the way we structure the Bible, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, testament is another word for covenant. So even the way we divide the Bible up into these two categories, that's a covenantal framework. So, uh, if you look in your uh, confessions, again, I am using the uh, modernized version of the confession put out by Founders Ministries. It says in section 1, chapter 7, Though rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their creator, the distance between God and these creatures is so great that they could never have attained the reward of life except by God's voluntary condescension. He has been pleased to express this through a covenant framework. <coughs> so the uh, confession begins this way. Though rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their creator. That is to say, by necessity of the creator-creature relationship, we, the creature, or creatures, are bound to obey God, the creator. A.A. Uh, a. Hodge comments on this concept. He says, Here we come to the duty which an intelligent creature owes its creator, that it is essential and inalienable of the creature's being. The duty which an intelligent creature owes to its creator is inalienable and springs necessarily, one, from the absolute imperative obligation which is of the essence of all that is morally right, which exercises authority over the will but does not receive authority from it. And two, from the relation of dependence and obligation involved in the very fact of being created. To be a created, intelligent, moral agent is to be under all the obligations of obeying the will and of living for the glory of the absolute owner and governor. In other words, we are by our creation, bound to obey the Creator. And we are morally, and this is apart from a covenant framework, this is just by virtue of the creature-creator uh, relationship. We are morally bound to obey. Okay? Um, or to even state this yet another way, 
We are made as the images of God. We, we spent an entire lesson, or maybe even two, on, on this concept of the image of God uh, several weeks, maybe months ago now. Um, we are made as the images of God. The function of an image is to in some way accurately represent the source that the image is mirroring. Right? So that necessarily entails following or obeying the directives of the source. Right? A mirror image follows what the source is doing. Right? If it doesn't, it's not really an image. Right? Or at least not an accurate image of the source. Alright. So the confession then continues. The distance between God and these creatures is so great that they could never have attained the reward of life except by God's voluntary condescension. So in other words, God is so high above and we are so low beneath Him that it would never be possible that we could have attained any rewards, much less eternal life, unless God sovereignly were to choose to condescend in His relationship with us. Um... Okay, so on this thought, I want us to look at Luke chapter 17. (laughs) And in Luke chapter 17, we will be looking at verses uh, 7 through 10. So Luke... 17, verses 7 through 10. Alright, it says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, that means commanded by God, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Or to say that another way, We haven't earned anything. (laughs) Um, For what we went over first to be the case, that by virtue of the creature-creator relationship, we are thereby bound to obey. There's no covenantal framework there. And therefore there's no covenantal rewards there. (laughs) Alright? So by nature of the creature Creator distinction. We are bound in this. Now, uh, again, Hodge comments on this. He says, The very act of creation brings the creature under obligation to the creator. But it cannot bring the creator into obligation to the creature. Creation itself, being a signal act of grace, cannot endow the beneficiary with a claim for more grace. If God, for instance, has created a man with an eye, it may be eminently consistent with divine attributes and a ground of fair anticipation that at some time he who has given eyes will also give light. But surely the creation of the first can lay the foundation of no right upon the part of man for the gift of the second. And of course, far less can the fact that in creation God endowed men with a religious nature lay the foundation of any right on their part for the uh, infinitely more precious gift of the personal communications of His own ineffable love and grace. God cannot be bound to take all creatures naturally capable of it into the intimacies of His own society. If He does so, it is a matter of infinite condescension and sovereign will. End quote. So on the basis of this fact, the confession asserts, God has been pleased 
Now remember, this is sovereign. This is God choosing to do this. So it pleases the Lord. It makes Him happy. God has been pleased to express this. That is, His voluntary condescension, wherein He relates to man so as to reward or curse him based on the conditions of their uh, of his sovereignly in, uh, instituted relationship. Um, so he has been pleased to express this through a covenant framework. Now before I go on to try to explain that, do we have any uh, comments or questions up to this point? No. Okay. Alright, so in trying to define the concept of the covenant a few weeks ago, we discussed that the catechism that we use in our Sunday school classes defines a covenant as an agreement between two or more parties. And uh, I believe, um, and I said at that time, that further explanation is necessary because it can be assumed the two parties are equals, and uh, at least in this case, uh, that's not so. And I quoted Louis Burkhoff, um, who said, All God's covenants are of the nature of sovereign dispositions imposed on man. God is absolutely sovereign in his dealings with man and has the perfect right to lay down the conditions which the latter must meet in order to enjoy his favor. So these are not equal parties. And Burkhoff would go on to say, Also, God graciously condescended to come down to the level of man and to honor him by dealing with him more or less on the footing of equality. So God voluntarily condescended in this way. He stipulates his demands and vouchsafes his promises and man assumes the duties thus imposed upon him voluntarily and thus inherits the blessings. End quote. So, with this in mind... And given that God is immutable, He does not change, we will adopt the definition that is offered by Wayne Grudem. This is the best definition I have found, uh, and I've been studying this topic for a very, very long time. Uh, but it is, a covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. Okay? So, and again, this is talking about divine covenants, not necessarily all covenants, but yeah. God and man covenants. So we have, it's unchangeable. Well, of course it is. God does not change. And it is divinely imposed. Again, not equal. Okay? It's not a negotiation, tit for tat kind of thing. God lays down what the content is, period. And. Uh, this is a legal agreement. There is a law involved uh, in this, of course, between God and man. And that law will stipulate the conditions of the relationship. Again, God institutes the law, uh, whatever the covenant is. Now, uh, what that law is will depend on what covenant we're talking about. Okay, so what the law of the covenant is can vary depending on what the covenant is. But nevertheless, all covenants do follow that definition. Uh, all right, so let's let's flesh this out a bit more because that was kind of long, and that's why I tried to go back through it a little bit. Um, so now let's flesh it out. Uh, for this task, we're going to heavily lean upon this book right here. Um, I highly recommend it. It is um, The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom by Sam Renahan. Uh, it can also be found on the Founders website, the same place where we buy these confessions we're using. Um, highly recommend it. In that work, uh, Renahan lays out the component parts of a biblical covenant. And we're going to look at these. So, first... There is the matter and form, and those are two different things, the matter and form of biblical covenants. So Renahan explains it this way. He says, the matter of a covenant is the commitments of the two parties. Okay? 
What are we agreeing to, in other words? Okay? The form of a covenant is reached when both parties officially ratify the terms, that is, the matter involved. By way of illustration, a marriage license is a legal document and can be said to be the matter of the marriage covenant before the civil magistrate. But until the bride and groom have sworn their marital oaths and signed the marriage license, the marriage has not been formally concluded or ratified. Does that make sense? Okay. Alright, so that's the matter and the form. So, the next component to consider is that of covenant sanctions. Renahan defines this simply as threats that enforce and ensure the fulfillment of the covenantal commitments. And we have two passages I want us to look at on this idea of covenantal sanctions. So first, let's go to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis uh, chapter 15, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 21. Genesis 15, verses 7 through 21. And this is God making a covenant with Abram, who would later become Abraham. And this is what it says. And he, God, said to him, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the uh, Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, that's interesting because back up in verse 6, it says, Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it him as righteousness. So he already believes. He's not questioning whether this is true. What he's questioning is, how could this be true? <laughs> okay? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And before I move on, let me explain what's going on here. This was a common practice in the in that region in that time for cutting and I'm saying this exactly the way I, it needs to be said for cutting a covenant you'll notice he cut the pieces in half okay um, what was going on was that you would the parties would cut these animals and they would lay um, basically they would make an aisle right so you have pieces here, pieces on the other side, and then they would walk between the pieces, right? And then what they're saying is, if I do not keep my obligations, whatever they may be, within this covenant, may, may it be that I would be like these pieces here, like these animals here. In other words, may I die. May I be cut in half. Okay? Kind of weird for our culture we don't really do things like this but it was common for them so back then everybody would have known what was going on here alright now as the sun was going down a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him then the Lord said to Abram know for certain now remember he had, he had asked the question how am I to know that I shall possess it God says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now this is where it gets really interesting. 
When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. This was what we call a theophany. This is an Old Testament appearance of God. In other words, this is saying God passed through the pieces. But Abraham did not. Abraham was asleep. Now normally, the inferior partner has got to go through the pieces. Not with this covenant. So God passed through and said, if I don't fulfill what I have divinely imposed, may it be that I will be like these pieces. Which, of course, we know it is impossible for God to lie. Um, he goes on and he says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And then you flip over to Hebrews, and I'm not actually going to flip to the passage, but you flip over there, and it's talking about this very covenant, and it says that God promised, and then... He gave an oath, which is this. And by these two unchangeable things, remember that's part of our definition, these two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Okay, this is our assurance. This is our, um, so if, God, if we are in covenant with God, and He has graciously chosen to bless us, it's a certain thing. Okay? Now, Another uh, passage I want us to look at for this idea of covenant sanction. Uh, Jeremiah 34. Jeremiah 34, and we're looking at verses 12 through 22. So Jeremiah 34, 12 through 22. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty, each to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. We see that same thing again there, right? The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which, was, uh, which has withdrawn from you. 
Behold, I will command, declares the Lord, and will bring them back to this city, and they will fight against it, and take it, and burn it with fire. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. So here, not only do we see there are covenant sanctions, we actually see them being imposed. Judah broke the covenant, and therefore the curses were invoked. And we know that that actually did happen historically as well. So, uh, before I move on to this next part, uh, any anybody got anything else on that? So, brief, brief recap. Mm-hmm. Uh, God made a covenant with us. Mm-hmm. He imposed all of the working parts of it and said that he would do it by himself basically and the only way that we know that is because he he condescended to to our level mm, I mostly agree with that okay. so the part about the working part mm-hmm. that's going to depend on what kind of covenant it which is covenant? which we okay. are going to get into right, 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 right. Um, but in, like in the covenant with Abraham mm-hmm. that was a at least there that's a gracious covenant yep Abraham didn't pass the parts, right? One-sided. Yes. So um, in that case, yes. But then like in this case, well, the inferior party did pass through the parts. Right. There's works involved. So see, there's different kinds of covenants, which we are about to get into. But uh, outside of that, yes, I I would agree with the way you just put that. All right. Anything else? All right. Uh, another component is referred to as restipulation. Not a common word, I know. Um, Renahan defines this term in a footnote. He says restipulation refers to man's response to God's proposition of terms in the covenant. God stipulates, man restipulates. So another way to put it might be. Uh, Well, he actually did say it this way. It's our response. Okay? God stipulates the terms of the covenant, and we respond to those stipulations in one way or the other. Right? All right. Finally, there is the matter of federal headship. And we have already discussed that with covenant of works. You really cannot have a proper... Uh, discussion of the covenant of works without getting into that topic. Um, but really, you can't have a proper discussion of covenants any uh, at, at all without getting into that topic. So, uh, Renahan quotes Nehemiah Cox, who um, really, until Renahan wrote his book, I think, was the standard for Reformed Baptists on this topic. But um, he quotes Nehemiah Cox, who said, uh, When God has made covenants in which either mankind in general or some elect number of men in particular have been involved, it has pleased him first. So again, God decides who the covenant head is, or federal head is. It has pleased him first to transact with some public person, head, or representative for all others that should involve, uh, or should be involved in them. Renohan goes on to explain that Federal headship is immediate. Now, I don't remember who was here and who was not here when we first started going over this way back in chapter 1. But we talked about immediate and immediate revelation. Okay? Immediate means there's not a mediator. It is immediately spoken to you. So, for example, there's not a mediator between you and me right now. The communication we're having is immediate, okay? If it is immediate, somebody has to be in the middle. Somebody has to mediate, all right? Well, so that's revelation, all right? Uh, But in terms of federal headship within a covenant context, federal headship is immediate, meaning one's covenant status depends upon one's direct relationship the covenant head. Okay? It's not uh, to put it in another line of reform thinking. 
it's not uh, the child of the child of the child of the child of and therefore I'm in the covenant. It's like in the Abrahamic covenant. I am the son of Abraham. Not the son of the son of the son of the son of, but I'm the son of Abraham, period. Okay? It's immediate. Um, so that's that's the idea. Uh, Renahan says it this way. All those whom the federal head represents are connected to the federal head directly, no matter how far removed by time or genealogical descent. Their right to the covenant and its blessings or curses flows exclusively and directly through and from the federal head. Well, we saw that in the covenant of works, right? Adam fell, our covenant head. Adam fell, and in him we also fell. Yes, we all, <coughs> apart from God's saving work in another covenant, apart from that, we all are under the curse because Adam fell. Now, we also went over, we all also have our own sins, so we can't just go, that darn Adam, if it would have just been somebody else. No, we went over that. Um, but, but you get the idea that uh, as goes the federal head, so goes the entire federation or the entire covenant, right? All right, any, any questions or concerns right there? Okay. Now, with all of these components in mind, I know that's a lot of information, so we have a graphic to try to bring this all together. Thank God. Um, I'm going to draw your attention to the board. Actually, let me move so we can get that on the camera too. Alright. This differentiates between two different kinds of covenants. Okay? You can call them you could say maybe it's like a spectrum, okay? Because there could be covenants that are mixtures of these two ends of the spectrum. Alright? But we're going to look at the two extremes right here for, for the sake of clarity. In the first type of covenant, this one here. So this right here is just our headings, okay? This is the first kind of covenant. Alright? In the first kind of covenant, the matter or the commitments of the covenant is law-keeping. Okay? The restipulation of man, uh, that is the conditions of the covenant, or again our response, right, is perfect obedience to this said law. Okay? The sanction is that of a covenant partner. What do I mean by that? Uh, oh, and by the way, let me just say this because I want to give proper credit. This comes directly out of Renahan's book. This is not my graphic. This is Renahan's. I just drew it bigger so you could see it. Uh, so let me say that real quick because you know, I'm not trying to plagiarize or anything. Um, all right, but what I was saying. So uh, it's covenant partner. So this means one partner has a law or a precept that they must follow. Okay, that's the lesser. And the other partner must reward that obedience or punish disobedience. Again, God voluntarily condescends. So when we say he must, he must, but he must because he said he must. Okay? Nobody's making him do it. Um, the form, this is the final thing, the form of this type of covenant is that the covenant of works. Because therein man must render obedience to the law of the covenant, and I should say perfect obedience to the law of the covenant, in order to obtain the rewards of the covenant, and he incurs the curses of the covenant for disobeying that same law. That's what we had in the Garden of Eden. If you want to say it's a perfect covenant of works. There was no mixture involved. That was a straight up covenant of works. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, this one down here, we have a type of covenant in which the matter or the commitment is that of a divine promise. The restipulation of man, again, the conditions of the covenant or our response, our response, is to simply receive the promise in faith. 
the sanction is that of a covenant imposer. Now, Renahan explains covenant imposer in this way. The blessings are external to the covenant partner. Is they don't come from within us at all. and Rather, they are imputed to him apart from merit or works. One does not need to earn the blessings of the covenant, but rather one simply receives the blessings of the covenant. End quote. So the form of this type of covenant is that of a covenant of grace because therein God sovereignly, freely, and graciously bestows the benefits of the covenant upon man apart from his works or any merit within him. Okay? It is from our... Well, it is the, uh, the greater covenant partner all the way through. It is grace to the lesser. All right. Any thoughts? Did that help? Did the graphic help? Because I know that was a lot of information that we just kind of tried to squeeze in there real quick. Um, I thought the graphic might help. Um, all right. Now, the final consideration I want to go over tonight is going to be um, what is the function of covenants? Okay. According to Renahan, and I agree with his assessment of this, God's covenants delegate dominion. He further explains covenants function as the legal basis. Remember, we with our uh, definition that we took from Grudem, this is a legal agreement, right? Covenants function as the legal basis upon which God interacts with man in a given kingdom. Covenants establish the boundaries of a kingdom, appoint federal heads, grant promises, impose laws, define the offspring of the federal head, and specify all other pertinent and necessary details of how God will exercise his dominion through the federal head and his offspring. By way of covenant, every party involved in a kingdom can know how to act and what to expect. Kingdoms manifest themselves in visible forms through the terms of their covenants. And if you don't get anything else that he said, get this. The kingdom is the covenant realized, implemented, or actualized. This is the framework. Okay, that, that's what we've tried to set up tonight for the rest of our discussion while we're in this chapter. This is the framework. This is the lens through which we view the whole of Scripture. This is the covenantal framework that is mentioned in section 1. Okay? Um, so get that. It is the king. Uh, the kingdom is the covenant realized, implemented, or actualized. Uh, can you repeat that? Just that last line, or the whole thing? <clears throat> the last line. Okay. The kingdom is the covenant realized, implemented, or actualized. And that was Renahan speaking. I'm <laughs> quoting him. All right. Any thoughts or discussion on any of that? Silence. I'm going to take that as a no. <laughs> All right, good deal. So I'm going to assume everybody understood. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> well, what was unclear? Let me try to explain it. What, what, what's fuzzy? I think maybe we start from somewhere that people would understand a covenant of works. Um, your job. You basically make a covenant at your job to do X, Y, and Z, and your boss promises to pay you, give you time off, or whatever. There's a covenant there. Covenant of grace would be your marriage. You don't necessarily expect certain things from the person that you're married to, but you give anyway. Does, does, 
So maybe maybe starting, and that's the way I think Scripture puts it. I, I'll add to your thing about the work. It's similar to what we just discussed. If you don't do that, you're going to get fired. You are. Yeah, there, there are there are stipulations. So there is a covenant of works involved in work. Yeah. Um, the covenant of grace is more like a marriage. And that's what I think Paul was discussing when he talked about it's a mystery being revealed in Christ. <clears throat> yeah, very good. That wasn't even, I had not connected those dots. But yeah, I agree. I think that's right. Yes. Yeah. So that might clarify and help if, if people had some confusion about it, what they are and how, they're, how we live them out each day. We, we actually work our, our function, our, our, we're all about covenants. <clears throat> we unfortunately cross them. Many people marry in a covenant of works in, this, in this today's society. When you quit giving me what I want, we'll just divorce. Yeah, well, that's, that's, the, that's the way it looks like. I was fixing to say yeah. the marriage part. I mean, yeah, I mean, something you know, a little different because I know. No, I mean, that's you not know, what that, scripture says. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the scriptural but, definition of marriage, yeah, I would agree. It's yeah, kind of right. Right. Yeah. It functionally works that way or not. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Because yeah. I can tell you, if I don't do what Susan tells me, you're going to get punished. Yeah, you're going to get punished. I agree. Yeah. Look at that way. I think one of our problems, or, or my, maybe my problem, I shouldn't say our, um, is that in our society and, and grow, growing up and being in, even in the church or whatever, covenants was rare, the word itself was rarely ever used. I mean, it is rarely ever used. And I found since being in our church, it's used a lot. I mean, you know, it, it, it bounds us all, all together. And I love that in that you have it spelled out for you, so to speak, as to what your part in the covenant with God is and, and every level of your life and what you do. And, but it's still a concept in itself because unlike the unlike the um, Abraham's people we were it's not something we are accustomed to we know laws and we know um, when we join into a contract or something like that yeah so I think the that's word how we normally more yeah. look at it as a contract or right. a covenant right in, in but, our society. I, but I like the word covenant better um, because it contract seems a legal thing where a covenant to me now that I've known I know so much more about it rather than you know just reading about them but never actually been taught in church exactly what it means exactly how different it is and how strong it is or should be between you and God, or you and whoever the covenant is between. Because this is the first I'll be, um, exposure. exposure to lessons about it that I have ever had. So other than my own reading, and I've read Guterman, Guterman's book, uh, cover to cover, and that's where I first began my understanding of it. So it's a difficult thing to grasp because it's not anywhere else really in, in life. I mean, you know, you the words are the words are different, but I think right. we do use it like, oh, like yeah. you know. And and even like this so, this people sitting here we're, this, this is much more like a covenant of grace. This is more like a marriage than a I expect everybody here to do certain things. Well, no, actually, no, that's right. The thing is, the covenant is supposed to be the, lo the strongest uh, 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 point of agreement. Uh, and basically, the situation is that it's, it's, it's immutable. Uh, and not only that, it's inviolable. Yeah. And so the situation is that, uh, you know, that's the reason. I mean, what he says is he's a covenant-making God. Mm -hmm. And basically, what he's done is uh, he is... 
I mean, this is the strictest form of agreement. So, yeah, no, I agree. And, and that's actually kind of where I, where I was about to go with that. So, whereas with a contract, you think more of a, uh, a business arrangement. This is, well, no, this is personal at this point. So uh, the uh, the common the common thing that is attached to biblical covenants is he will be our God and we will be his people. That's an intimate relationship. So that is more akin to like a marriage. There's intimacy involved. It's not just well these are the terms that I agree to. Do you agree to my term? It's not like that at all. It's I am vowing allegiance to you in a personal. Uh, in the most personal way. What happens is that yes. when they talk about covenants uh, in the Old or the New Testament, uh, I mean, you break a covenant and you have literally uh, uh, subjugated yourself to death. No, absolutely. And that's what the, the, the parts of the animal are about. Is to say, if you break the covenant, you're done. Yeah, that's right. You're over with. It is. It is. That is it's that serious. It's over. Yeah. 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 But when you think about it, when you think about it, all the years that I have been in a church, in different churches, in different uh, congregations, in different like Methodist or Baptist churches, or uh, denomination. That's what the word I was trying to say. Thank you. Denominations. I'm 70 years old, and I can tell you, I have been kid. in church. Just a kid. <laughs> I have. I have been in church since as long as I can remember things, and gone to Sunday school and Bible school and been in in uh, uh, in church and preaching and all this stuff and revivals and so forth. There has never been for me a time that I have heard covenants discussed to this thing and and brought to my attention that as a believer, I'm part of a covenant. And so it's just, uh, I'm just learning so much about it. And I, I, the bits and pieces, I knew what my responsible, I mean, you know, what they were. But not in in thinking about it, it as being a covenant. So on that point, I, I think the reason for that is kind of what I was mentioning with the uh, sprawl quote at the mm -hmm. beginning. Uh, this is really our, our view of covenant theology. This is the reform. This is the reform distinctive. It's not mm -hmm. Calvinism. It's this um, because even the Calvinist perspective, this is where it comes from. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, it fits within the covenant framework, and um, I will go ahead and tell you, I don't think it'll be as many lessons, but I do intend to put as much emphasis on this as I did the Trinity. And in fact, we will be revisiting the Trinity because one of the main biblical covenants is an inner Trinitarian covenant. So um, I want to make sure that we, if we got to go slow here, I want to make sure we properly cover this because. Our view of this is why we are Reformed, and our view of this is also why we are Baptist. So both of those descriptives of us comes from how we view covenant theology. So it's this is very important that we get uh, this chapter as well as chapter 8, um, which uh, chapter 8 is going to be on Christ as the mediator, but that is also tied to covenant theology. He is our federal head in the um, covenant of grace, and he serves all of the functions of the federal head within that covenant of grace. So, when you say Baptist, you're talking about confessional Baptist. I mean, well, yeah, I do. Okay, so this this is what I mean by that. Okay, so there are uh, different kinds of Baptists, right? So all of us would agree that um, only professors of the faith should be baptized. Okay, all of us would agree. But how we get to that point is not the same. So how the uh, Baptist church down the road probably gets to it, I don't know what their theology is, but if I, I do know some people that go there. So uh, based on that, if I had to make an educated guess, I would say they don't get to that place the same way we do. 
Even though we're and both they there. Stay there the same way we do. No, that's right. Well, I mean, we're both there. Yeah. But we didn't get there in our degree, even yeah, stay there, stay there yeah. the same way. So their foundation for that would be different than ours. I'm just saying, what you're talking about when you say Baptist, you're speaking of this particular church. Yeah, I'm talking about how we here oh, at oh, this oh, church oh, get oh, to oh, the place of uh, the baptism of professing disciples alone. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. And Baptist, historically, that's up until about the mid-1800s, that's would probably be every Baptist yeah. church you would come around. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yep. All right. Uh, that was pretty good discussion. Anything else? Well, I'll read it. And the reason I was, like Miss Connie was saying, I've been to some Baptist churches. I got friends that go to this one. <coughs> Love them. Yeah, absolutely. But they're not talking about this. this. This is not something, and if you talk to them about it, it's going to hit a little hairy. You know what I mean? They, they don't. Eyes may start glazing up. Yes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, it's just different. Yes, very. No, it, it's yeah. very. You know, right. I kind of saying, this is the first time, you know, I've been blessed to be here with you guys, but, you know, this all this stuff, I went to a first Christian church for my entire young life, and, you know, I, I was strongly a believer in Christ, and he was my Savior. It's only you get there, but this is much more in-depth and makes me understand it a lot better. Great. So and, and to go and to go one step further without getting too deep, there are people that don't see covenant framework in scripture. Oh yeah, I agree. Which they, is they mind blowing given the fact that we divided yeah. old covenant, new covenant. <laughs> right. But yeah. no, you're right. I mean yeah. you are right, even though I just talk about it, they don't even see it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Hundred percent. All right, well, if that's no, no more discussion. We'll close with prayer. Okay, and we'll, uh, Lord willing, we'll continue on with this for the next several weeks. <laughs> Father, um, we come to you in the name of our covenant head, Jesus Christ. And we are thankful that you have chosen to condescend um, to enter into a gracious covenant with us. And we confess and acknowledge that apart from your voluntary condescension, we would be hopelessly lost. We pray that you would help us to live in the light of the covenant blessings that flow to us through our covenant head, Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help us to go out to the nations as we've been commanded to do and to disciple the nations. And we pray that you would bring your children into your kingdom and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.